please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, as we continue our series of messages through the book of Romans. And this morning we will look at the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 2. And the underlying theme of these verses is the judgment of God, especially upon self-appointed judges. The judgment of God, especially upon self-appointed judges. Last time we looked at the wrath of God described in Romans 1, 18-32. This morning we'll look at the judgment of God as Paul continues his overarching theme to show that all the world is guilty before a holy God. And we'll look at that issue of judgment, how God will judge the world. I want you to notice three things this morning. Number one, God's judgment leaves no room for us to judge others. God's judgment leaves absolutely no room for us to sit in judgment of others. Verses 1 through 4. Secondly, God's judgment is based on our deeds or our works. And we see that in verses 5 through 11. And then finally, God's judgment is impartial, absolutely impartial, with reference to Jews and Gentiles. And we see that in verses 12 through 16. So along with an outline of the message, let's pray and ask God to bless all of us as we study His Word together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and Him only. Lord, we know that You're present with us. Help the pastor to realize that as he delivers the Word of God. Help parishioners to understand that as we receive the Word of God. Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit, You would speak to all of us through Your eternal, infallible Word. Speak to our hearts of eternal things. We'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do. And we make our prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, God's judgment leaves no room for us to judge others. And we see that in verses 1 through 4. Now, let me make a public service announcement before we dig into this. This is not a call for us to suspend our critical faculties or to renounce all criticism of others as illegitimate. The Bible that we're studying this morning is the same Bible that teaches us in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 6, 1 and 2 that believers are called to basically judge one another in terms of whether or not they are in sin. In other words, if one falls away, if one commits sin, we who love that brother or sister are called to go and confront them to love them enough to care for them. Each one looking to himself. That's the key. If we go in love, we go because we condemn ourselves first. It's the very thing that Jesus taught. Judge not that you be not judged. And then he elaborated on that in that little passage we read in the Gospel this morning. When you go, take the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly to take the log out of the brother or sister's eye. In other words, don't go with the attitude that you're superior to that person. Go with the attitude that you are condemned with that person, but for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
that's proper judgment. No, rather, what Paul is talking about is a prohibition of standing in judgment over other people and condemning them, which as human beings we have no right to do whatsoever, especially when we fail to condemn ourselves. Let me give you an illustration. I can stand on the shore, as I did many times with all my children, and uh, told them, don't go out in the ocean uh, by yourself. Make sure that someone is with you. And uh, my child could run out there. I think one in particular, I won't say his or her name, but uh, they would run out into the ocean, and uh, all of a sudden a big wave would come, and they would look like they were drowning. And let's just say, hypothetically, they were drowning. I can judge in two ways. One, I can sit there and say, you see what happened? Yeah, this is it. I told you it was going to happen. I knew it was coming. And you should not have gone out in that water. Or I can judge the situation and recognize that I need to dash into that water and save my child lovingly and bring him to the shore and then instruct them tenderly. This is why I told you not to do this. Big, big difference between the two judgments. That's what God calls us to do. Last Sunday, Paul spoke of numerous sins against the Gentiles in Romans 1, 18-32. And by the end of that chapter, the Scripture led us to the conclusion that we're all sinners before a holy God. You see, Romans 1, 18-32 should lead to humility in a sense of personal guilt before a holy God. It should never lead to pride in a sense of moral superiority over others. But today in chapter 2, Paul anticipates that there are those who proudly uh, congratulate themselves, thinking that they're not like those creepy people Paul just described in Romans chapter 1. Paul anticipates them. And I believe that Paul is beginning to talk to his Jewish counterparts. This is a very subtle uh, way that Paul goes about this. He doesn't say who he's talking to. But if you look at all of Romans 2, he begins by saying, You, O man, and he ends by a firm indictment on his Jewish brothers and sisters. And so really, we always take chapter 2 of Romans to say, after Paul has shown that the Gentiles are condemned by this holy God, now we see that all Jews stand in condemnation too as a result of this God and His holiness. He starts in a very subtle manner, but then it becomes loud and clear at the end. It's kind of like when the prophet Nathan confronted David. You remember he said there? There was this situation, this story, where uh, this fellow had a little lamb, and uh, that's all he had, and this other fellow came and took it away from him. And you remember David with his righteous indignation, that man must pay. He must pay. And at the end of that story, Nathan said, the man is you. The man is you. He started off subtle. But there was a crescendo at the end, and David realized, I have sinned. That's what Paul, I think, is bringing about in this passage. Look at verses 1 and 2. Passing judgment on others, uh, Paul tells us does two things. It leaves us without excuse and without escape whenever we judge others in the wrong way. Look at verses 1 and 2. As Paul told the Gentile world that they were without excuse before a holy God in light of the evidence of God in nature... General Revelation, we call that. So now Paul tells those who look down at the Gentiles that they, just like the Gentiles, are without excuse. Why? Paul is saying that no human being has the right to judge and condemn another with regard to his or her acceptability before a holy God. And why is that? Because everyone is guilty before this holy God. 
That includes Jews as well as Gentiles. He goes on to say, in that you judge another, you judge yourself. For you judge, you who judge practice the same things. These people have a high view of themselves and a low view of the seriousness of their sin. Thomas Hobbes, the 17th century political philosopher, wrote of people who are, quote, forced to keep themselves in their own good favor by observing the imperfections of other men. <laughs> I think we do a good bit of that when we go through life. We look at others and we condemn or we say awful things about them without looking to ourselves. As we learned last week, the indicators of guilt before God include not only one's actions, but also the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We looked at Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at James as he said, if you break one commandment, you break them all. And the Lord Jesus made it clear that whenever we have thoughts and intentions that break God's law, we might as well have broken God's law already. We stand guilty, just as if we had carried out those actions. And so we all stand guilty before God, regardless of doing or thinking evil. And Paul makes it clear that this kind of arrogance in judging others shows contempt for God and His holiness. And therefore, it is worthy of God's condemnation. Now, you'll notice in verse 2, we get a clue and perhaps confirmation that Paul has Jews in mind as he is uh, saying these words. He includes himself with his audience in saying, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. The logical inference is that we as Jews know this. God gave us the law after all. We know the living God, not just by general revelation, but by special revelation. And if there's one thing we all can agree on as Jews, that the condemnation falls upon the one who disobeys God's law. Law breakers. First John says that sin is lawlessness. And so Paul is saying to his fellow Jews in a subtle way, you should know better. We should know better that we are no more innocent than the Gentiles. How do we know? Because we were given the law, the book of the covenant. Therefore, we have special revelation of this God. And so Paul says, passing judgment on others leaves us without excuse. It also leaves us without escape. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul infers that these people think they will escape the judgment of God. But they're greatly mistaken. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that all must stand before the judgment of Almighty God. And Jesus Christ himself will act as judge of both the living and the dead. 2 Corinthians 5.10, the Apostle Paul says, We must each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In 1 Peter 4.17, Peter says, It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's a serious matter. No one is going to escape judgment. But these individuals apparently think they are. Those who think they will escape judgment show contempt for God and presume upon His grace and mercy. And these people practice a self-righteous hypocrisy. They have no authentic fear of God. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes fit into this category. They were self-righteous judges who used their religious position to abuse God's people and to amass wealth. They were lovers of money. 
It's clear in their attempts to, Je- to kill Jesus that they had no authentic fear of God, and they presumed upon his grace and kindness. You know, an authentic fear of God is a very, very good and healthy thing. It amplifies the gospel. You should not be afraid of God's terror, God's judgment, because what it does is it makes the good news even better. That I have fled for refuge from this great God who will be dealing out retribution one day and who is bringing about his wrath even now in the unbelief of individuals. I was reading Psalm 95 this morning. You know that psalm, it talks about all the wonders of God. It's very brief, but it talks about how God created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all those things in them. And then it speaks to the children of Israel. Today, if you will not harden your heart and allow your ear to hear. And all I could do was think about how could these children of Israel ever in the wilderness say and murmur against God, God, why don't you give us bread? Why don't you give us water? There is no reality there with who you're dealing with. This God who is great beyond all other gods. In fact, there is no other God besides the one living and true God. And he is angry with the wicked every day, the Scripture says. And he will deal out retribution. And if he didn't, it would lessen the sacrifice of his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, crucifixion on the cross and resurrection, when ignored, and when rejected, deserves God's wrath. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, whom we all like to point to and say, look at those guys, look what they're doing. I'd never do that. I'd never act as a hypocrite. I would never have false motives. I would never plan hatred in my heart or even murder. No, we all are guilty of things like that especially in the heart. And so whenever we look to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, we have to look back at ourselves and say, we are all guilty. And but for the grace of God, there go I. God's judgment leaves no room for us to judge others. Secondly, God's judgment is based on our deeds. Look at verses 5 through 11. He calls it his righteous judgment. And in verse 5a, Paul makes it clear to presume on God's patient kindness, as if the purpose that to encourage license, not penitence, is a sure sign of stubbornness and of an unrepentant heart. Paul is saying, all right, you look at the Gentiles, you condemn the Gentiles, but you don't see your need. He goes on to say, you're storing up wrath for yourselves. You see the similarities between this chapter and chapter 1? You're without excuse. And while the wrath of God is being demonstrated amongst the Gentiles because of their unbelief, you are storing up wrath for yourself. And the last day when the Lord will pour out His wrath, when you have an attitude of arrogance and sit in judgment of someone else, far from escaping God's judgment, these will bring it all more surely upon themselves. Now look at verse 6. Paul explains his expression, God's righteous judgment. And he begins by stating that the principle is based on, namely, that God will give to each person according to what he has done. 
This statement is probably from Psalm 62, verse 12. It also occurs in the prophecies of Hosea and Jeremiah and is sometimes elaborated on with vivid expressions in words like this, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Jesus himself repeated it. So did Paul. It's also a recurring theme in Revelation. It is the principle of exact retribution, which is a foundation of authentic justice. Now, some Christians find this disturbing, that God will judge according to our deeds. They reason this way. What's wrong with the Apostle Paul? I mean, after all, this is the man who gave us salvation by grace through faith alone. Does he begin to declare that salvation is of works? No, not at all. Paul is not contradicting himself. What he is affirming is that although justification is indeed by faith alone in Christ, plus nothing, justification, or excuse me, judgment, will be according to our works. Listen to the words of John MacArthur. Quote, Paul is not teaching how we are made right with God, but how God judges the reality of our faith. Faith is not an abstract quality that can be validated by some spiritual unrelated or test unrelated to life. God judges faith by the difference it makes in how a person actually lives. And that's why you see the quote in all caps from the Old Testament. A.M. Hunter is right when saying, quote, a man's destiny on Judgment Day will depend not on whether he known God's will, but on whether he has done it. Jesus said as much in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who has done the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, our lifestyle and our actions have to match our profession of faith. The general trajectory of our lives. This is why Jesus taught that those who respond to the needs of the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the sick and the prisoner will be rewarded with eternal life. But those who fail in these down-to-earth tasks will go away to eternal punishment, Matthew 25. And you see, the day of judgment will be a very public occasion. This day will serve not to determine God's righteous judgment, but to announce and vindicate it. As we learned in Romans 1, divine judgment is, which is a process of sifting and separating. It's going on secretly all the time. As people posture themselves, I'm for Christ, or I'm opposed to Christ. You see the wrath of God being poured out. Divine judgment being exercised to some degree. And so the day of God's righteous judgment will also be a public occasion, which a public verdict will be given, and a public sentence passed. And these actions require public and verifiable evidence in support of God's righteous judgment and verdict. And the only public evidence available will be our works, what we have done according to God's all-seeing eye upon our hearts and lives. In summary, the presence or the absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. That's extremely important, ladies and gentlemen. Apostle Paul and James both teach the same truth, that authentic saving faith invariably issues itself in good works, and that if it does not, it is bogus, even dead. I, by my works, will show you my faith, says James. And Paul echoes the same, faith 
working through love. And so you see, judgment will be according to our deeds. We cannot separate who we are from what we do. Now in verses 7 through 10, Paul unpacks verse 6 for us. Namely, the principle that the basis of God's righteous judgment will be what we have done. And you'll notice he presents two alternatives. And both alternatives include three things. Number one, our goal. What do we seek? Number two, our works. What do we do? And number three, our end. Where are we going? The two final destinies of humankind are eternal life, which we see in verse 7, which Jesus defined in terms of knowing him and knowing the Father. And then secondly, wrath and indignation in verse 8, the awful outpouring of God's judgment. Now, the basis of this separation will be a combination of what we seek, that is our ultimate goal in life, and what we do, that is our actions and the service either of ourselves or of others. It is very similar to the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in which he delineated the alternative human ambitions, seeking our material welfare or seeking the kingdom of God. And the alternative human activities, practicing or not practicing his teaching. Now, coming back to Paul, on the one hand, there are those who seek glory. That is, the manifestation of God himself. They seek God's approval. That is, immortality. And, moreover, they seek these God-centered blessings by persistence in doing good. That is, they persevere in the way. Well, perseverance is the hallmark of genuine believers. As one has often said, the righteous man falls many times. Perseverance means you always get back up and get in the race. That's why Jesus told us to forgive not just seven times, but seven times seventy he knows our propensity to evil. He knows how weak we are. And he gives grace and mercy. But he calls us to persevere. And not just in avoiding sin, but in doing good. By attending worship, as you are doing this morning. By taking the sacrament. By studying your Bible. By taking time from our jam-packed schedules to meet with other believers. Sharing our faith helping in the ways that Jesus outlined. Now, on the other hand, there are those who are characterized as selfishly ambitious. Those who are infatuated with themselves and engrossed in self-centered goals. Inevitably, they reject the truth and follow evil, as verse 8b says. Indeed, they suppress the truth by their own wickedness, as we learn in chapter 1, verse 18. Both of these expressions blame the repudiation of truth or evil on evil or wickedness. And to sum up, those who seek God and persevere in goodness will receive eternal life, while those who are self-seeking and follow evil will experience God's wrath. Now, once again, let me make very, very clear. Paul is talking about God's judgment, not God's salvation. He's talking about the way that he views the authenticity of our faith, if it's real or not. And the proof is in our obedience. The proof is in living out what we profess. 
sum up, all who seek God and persevere in goodness will receive eternal life, while those who are self-seeking and follow evil will experience God's wrath. And you'll notice in verses 9 and 10, Paul restates the same solemn alternatives with three differences. First, he simplifies the two categories of people. Every human being who does evil in verse 9 and everyone who does good in verse 10. And Jesus made the exact same division between those who have done evil and those who have done good when he talked about judgment. Secondly, Paul elaborates the two destinies. He describes the one as trouble and distress in verse 9, emphasizing its anguish, and the other as glory and honor and peace. The honor of verse 7, which form part of goal of the goal of believers which they seek, and he adds peace to that. The comprehensive word for reconciled relationships with God and with each other. Thirdly, Paul adds to both sentences, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, affirming the priority of the Jew alike in judgment and in salvation, and thus declaring the absolute impartiality of God. For God does not show favoritism. When it comes to the last portion, the Bible makes it clear that God's judgment leaves no room for us to judge others in the wrong way. Secondly, God's judgment is based on our deeds, and we cannot escape that. Thirdly, God's judgment is impartial. He alludes to this in verse 11, but he really expands on it in the last portion of this passage in verses 12 through 16. Paul continues in verse 12 from where he left off as he demonstrates that God's judgments are impartial, both now and in the future on the day of judgment. And in these verses, Paul shows us that God's impartiality is both external and internal. External, first of all, with reference to God's law. Look at verse 12. Paul makes it clear that possession of the law of God is no exemption from God's judgment. Those who have sinned without the law, that is the Gentiles, those who have sinned under the law, that is the Jews. You can face judgment without the law. You can face judgment under the law. It shows God's impartiality with reference to Jew and Gentile. This reminds us of one of the most important uses of the law of God. Namely, to show us our sin and convince us of our guilt before a holy God. The law was never meant to be a means of establishing righteousness before God. It is first and foremost a means of condemnation. It is to show us how far short we fall. Jews thought they had the advantage over the whole world because God gave them the law, but they were greatly mistaken. Paul's already made it clear. You can carry the law around all you want to, just like you can carry your Bible around. But if you don't obey Jesus Christ from the heart, there is no salvation. You can get as subjective as you want and say you exercise faith, but if that is not there, it's not legitimate. Well, Paul essentially says in verse 13, obedience to God's law is the mark of those who are truly just before God. Once again, Paul is writing about judgment and not about salvation. He is emphasizing that the law itself did not guarantee the Jews immunity to judgment as they fought. But what mattered was not possession, but obedience. Moreover, Paul is not discounting the fact that sinners are justified by faith alone. He's going to address this in chapter 3, heavily. Paul is simply outlining the indictment of his fellow Jews, who in arrogance and pride 
judge others and excuse themselves of God's judgment. So you see, it'll be external with reference to God's law, but also internal with reference to the human heart. Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul makes it clear that obedience to and love for God's law is a matter of the heart. That is, God must change the heart before we will ever move toward Him in His law in obedience. You won't move toward Christ. You won't be hungry for Christ until God does a work of grace in your heart. Until He opens your eyes to the reality that the law is a condemning tool. And the law makes me hungry for Christ. It is a tutor to lead me to Christ, who is my only hope. Verse 15, Paul outlines the truth of the New Covenant, namely that God will write His law on human hearts. And the New Covenant was given to the Jews in Jeremiah 31. Just like the law of God, the Jews were not to just hold on to it. Possession of it didn't mean that they were going to participate in it. No, they had to believe. And God commissioned them to make His glorious new covenant of grace and mercy known to the world, to the Gentiles. But they did not obey. And here we see the inward reality of the new covenant in the hearts of the Gentiles. What an amazing thing that God gave the new covenant to the Jews. God gave the law to the Jews, but all they did was possess it. They didn't participate in it. Not all of them, but the vast majority. So we brought about a new covenant in Christ Jesus. And you'll notice in verse 16, Paul concludes by showing that God's impartial judgment goes past race, past the human heart, right down to the secrets of men. One day when Christ returns, He will judge. And our works and our deeds will be exposed. And also our secrets, the secrets of men, that is the basis of God's judgment. Now let me make a couple of applications here quickly. Number one, the judgment of God should eliminate a judgmental spirit in us toward others. The judgment of God, as outlined in this passage, should eliminate a judgmental, critical spirit of us toward others. You got a critical spirit? Just always looking for the wrong thing, for the thing that is not right to somebody? I'm not saying walk around like a Pollyanna optimist. But somebody has given you a break. The Lord God, you should give someone a break too. Number two, the judgment of God should lead us to a thorough examination of ourselves. What am I seeking? What am I doing? Where am I going? Is life about all getting the, the number of toys that I want to get? Is life about amassing wealth? Is life about retirement only? No. The whole of life is to be lived before the face of God, serving Him and doing those works that He calls us to do. Caring about the lonely, taking care of the destitute, providing friendship and love to those without it. We should examine ourselves. How am I spending my time? How am I spending my money? Because none of that's going to be concealed before the eyes, as Hebrews says, of Him with whom we have to do. Thirdly, the judgment of God should drive us to believe and obey the gospel. Trust in Jesus Christ allows us to face the judgment of God without any fear of condemnation. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, it's not a matter of how much you do. Don't walk out of here today distressed by saying, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough good work? That's not the intention of this. It's a matter of the heart. Your willingness to serve Christ anytime, anywhere. Remember the thief on the cross. He had an opportunity to do absolutely no good works. And Jesus said to him, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Scripture has a marvelous way of balancing itself out. But you see, we didn't have that last-minute conversion experience. We come to know Christ. And therefore, we are responsible for doing good works, for obeying Christ's Word. And whenever He puts a finger on something in our lives that is not consistent in our behavior with His Word, we've got to deal with it. First and foremost, though, we have to obey the Gospel. The people of Jesus' day in the Gospel of John says, what do we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Anything you do in terms of good works is worthless without first the work of God, and that is believing, trusting in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross to cleanse you of your sins. The judgment of God should drive us to believe and obey the gospel. Finally, fourthly, the judgment of God should motivate us to share the gospel with others. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If I truly believe that there's an everlasting heaven and an everlasting hell where men are going to suffer all of eternity, that should motivate me to care enough to tell others about Christ. And the fact that only He he alone can save a soul from their sins. The judgment of God is an awesome thing. But it sure does make the grace of God all the more marvelous and beautiful. Because we have already been judged in Christ Jesus. And so when we stand before the judgment bar of God one day, I believe the Lord will be there with us saying, This one is mine. And His life demonstrates it. How about you? How about me? Let's pray. Lord God, it's challenging and hard even. We talk about these things, but it shouldn't be. But we know that we look at the whole counsel of God. And your wrath and indignation and judgment are just as valuable as your grace and mercy and kindness to us in the gospel. In fact, one certainly sharpens the other. Lord, help us to digest this. I pray that you would make our hearts secure in our faith in you by conviction and service help us to go forward and do those things that you command us to do Lord for some who have never known you I pray that you would do what only you can do open the heart, open the eyes open the ears to the need for a Savior and marvelously enter their hearts and save them for the sake of your glorious name and Lord, do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do in our lives today and beyond today. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.